Hello there, you're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill, and we are without Dylan Johnson today, but we're still going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. And in honor of the new prequel film, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, we will be doing a franchise retrospective on the Hunger Games series. And to help me look back on the story of Katniss Everdeen, we have Hunger Games super fan Andrea Rincon here <laughs> making her debut on the pod. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I'm excited. <laughs> and we also have Sebastian Marcano Perez returning to the show, a very familiar voice on our show. So thank you for coming back. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. <laughs> going to jump into some news and we have huge news that we couldn't report on in a more timely manner because of the way we were recording our episode so this is a bit outdated but the SAG strike is over SAG after has been able to reach a deal with AMPTP all the studios so they're getting back to work I believe the board at SAG has voted on it and it passed all the members have yet to vote on it, so that'll be when it like officially, officially is a done deal. But at, for the time being, actors are able to get back to work because there is the expectation that it will be accepted by all the union members. So this is great news. However, that strike, which lasts for four months and of course also overlaps with the writer's strike, does have some consequences for the industry. We are seeing the uh, effects of not being able to film for like four months. So the release date shuffle is coming back yet again. We had it with the pandemic and now we just somehow there keeps coming up with new ways to have the release date shuffle return. So Captain America 4 has been moved to 2025, delayed an entire year. Thunderbolts has also been moved to 2025 and then filling Thunderbolts's previous spot in December 2024, Mufasa the Lion King has been delayed out of summer, and then Deadpool 3 has moved off of its beginning of May slot, which Marvel has had for, I think, Ever. the entirety of its run, right? It's always the the kickoff for the summer season. They have moved off of that date and have taken Captain America's July 2024 date, so... I know that's seemingly the only Marvel movie we'll get next year. Exactly. For it's only, better or worse. Yeah, the only MCU film, because there are the Sonyverse things, which, by the way, oh yeah, since it just came out, did you all see the Madam Web trailer? Uh, unfortunately, I, I did. <laughs> Dude. I didn't subject myself to that pain. <laughs> wow. Count yourself lucky and very smart for, uh, for not having to uh, go through that, because shockingly bad like just it's crazy it's straight <laughs> out of the early 2000s that's yeah but honestly even then it's like the thing where everyone knew better like with Electra and catwoman and all that it's like they already knew that, that was hot garbo back then and somehow two decades later they're making things that are like that so yes we're gonna have three sony films in their little spony side sony spider-verse thing and then we have one DC film, which is not part of any interconnected DC universe, and then one MCU film, which technically is really a Fox 
film, right? It's from Deadpool. It's the third film in that series. It's bringing back mm-hmm. all the old Fox characters of X-Men and whatnot. So it's not even really an MCU film. So this is pretty amazing that we're getting only one DC film, one MCU film. And both of those aren't even really connected to the established universes they've created. And then we have three <laughs> of the Sony Spider-Verse things. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, I you think know. I think every so often we have an incredible year for movies like we're having this year. Mm-hmm. And then somehow we have to follow up a like a historic high with like uh like the worst low you could possibly get. <laughs> like three Sony Marvel movies sounds like hell on earth. It sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Another announcement that we got for a forthcoming film legend of zelda a live action film has been announced so we knew from super mario brothers success that we were going to get a ton of video game adaptations coming out of the woodwork especially from nintendo and legend of zelda of course their next most famous property is getting the adaptation treatment what do you all feel about this being live action rather than animated I think it's a mistake. (laughs) A mistake. (laughs) I think I think they had something so beautiful with the Mario movie, Uh, and obviously, there's. I'm glad that there was only one way to do Mario right, and that was through animation. I think Legend of Zelda could thrive in a live action environment. I simply don't trust it, though, and (laughs) that's coming from a very cynical place of um, live action adaptations of video games obviously but i think it completely start like it's the same argument that we always have about animated movies being undermined as being lesser than so like a property like mario which can be more childish more uh kid oriented being thrown at um at, at an animation seems fine but something that could be like something a project that could really be beautiful and thrive in an animated uh film is being thrown into like the live action ring or to subject itself to everything that uh we know can come from live action life live action video game adaptations so i'm not very thrilled about it but i'm still crossing my fingers yeah i mean i think it truly depends on what Legend of Zelda they're trying like what story they're trying to go for I think Breath of the Wild would go really well with live action but I think the earlier titles like Twilight Princess and just like original Legend of Zelda might not thrive as much so I guess it kind of depends I am excited to see who they'll cast I would love Hunter Shader to Zelda because that's like the famous fan cast but I do think she would do really well in that role but I'm excited but I do agree that I think because Legend of the is more of a, uh, an adult game, not that it's adult, but just for like an older generation, um, they tend to think like, oh, we can't do animated, even though I think an animated version of Legend of Zelda would also be really beautiful. All right. We have another adaptation, this time from an animated show into live action. Netflix's Avatar The Last Airbender. They have released their official trailer. Have y'all been able to catch it? I assume y'all have also watched the animated show. I I have also seen this trailer. <laughs> I haven't seen the trailer, but I've seen the show. Okay, gotcha. 
so you stay away from uh trailers Andrea <laughs> yeah I try not to because trailers now just show you everything that's going to be in the movie so I'd rather just not see the trailer mm-hmm. yeah I get that I've always loved the watching trailers but you're right I a lot of them there's an art to a trailer and some of them when they get that right hit it beautifully they don't reveal too much of the plot but they strike the tone and atmosphere really well oh chef's Mission kiss impossible. it's amazing <laughs> Mission Impossible with Friction by Imagine Dragons. I forget the movie's <laughs> name, but the one before, the one before uh, Dead Reckoning. That is still one of the best trailers ever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this one, they, which again, I mean, it's not like it can spoil anything since we've seen the show before, but it is a good way to get a glimpse at how they're going to approach it and then actually seeing the characters come to life. Um, and so, I'm still very much looking forward to it because I love after I remember the show. We know how that other live action adaptation went. So <laughs> this one being more faithful, having a lot more time over the course of a whole season to dig into everything, I think will definitely benefit it. I think the casting is really good. Like Seb, since you saw it, there's like that moment when Momo comes up and he's flying next to Aang and then Aang's mm-hmm. like smiling and happy just perfect like that kid totally embodied ang in that moment um yeah and the rest of the trailer took a more serious tone so it was nice that we had that moment of levity in there so i am looking forward to it it does however i mean it just looks it has that like netflix gloss and sheen and that like that green screen sun effect where you can just tell where it's like okay they're on (laughs) the soundstage or on a volume or something so that's disappointing because there's so much money going into this. It's like, how are you not able to make it look pristine? Like, yeah, but that's okay. Still looking forward to it. And in other news, Warner Brothers Discovery kills the Coyote versus Acme film starring John Cena and co-produced by James Gunn, who of course is going to be helming the DC universe, but apparently not even that position can protect you from having when your films get scrapped for a tax write-off because that's what they did to this film. Just like Batgirl, Um, And again, it was like fully completed. It was on its way to just being released. But thankfully, there is a chance that it will get released. There was a whole bunch of outrage and outcry from fans and industry professionals alike, where apparently they had, you know, seen how it was testing and it did really well and they had seen the film and it was incredible. So they were rooting for the film to get a chance and WDD did decide to walk back a little bit and give the filmmakers a chance to shop around. So other distributors can um, bring it to life. However, it still brings the question why Zaslav is doing everything he can to run the studio into the ground. Because one, what filmmaker is going to trust working with Warner Brothers anymore that there's such a huge chance that it just might never see the light of day? And two, why would you ever give rival studios an opportunity to put their logo at the front of a film starring one of your key IP, your key franchises? I mean, this is Wiley Coyote. Right, like Looney Tunes. Why would you ever do that and muddle your branding in that way? Makes no sense. All right, we'll now switch over to the box office breakdown for November 10th to the 12th. We had a Marvel film release, The Marvels, and it made $46.1 million, making it a historic bomb for the MCU. It is the lowest of any film in the MCU, so even beating out The Incredible Hulk which is technically what started it um, back in 08. 
that made like 55 million. And that's also what The Flash made, which we thought was going to be the biggest bomb, superhero bomb of this year. But however, it has been dethroned by the Marvels, which is a sequel to a successful film. The original Captain Marvel made 153 million in its opening weekend. That's insane. Over 100 million drop off. It is not even going to be able to, like, over its entire domestic run, the Marvels will not be able to match that opening weekend, which is insane. And it may take the record of the biggest drop-off of a sequel to a billion-dollar film, because Captain Marvel made $1.1 billion. This one may not be able to crack $300 million. That's insane. Insanity, yeah. Underneath the Marvels came... Five Nights at Freddy's with $9 million, bringing its domestic total to $127 million. Taylor Swift still having her place on the charts with $6 million. Uh, she can do it all. She can do it all. For real. <laughs> Priscilla with $4.8 million, just beating out Killers of the Flower Moon with $4.5 million. And then we have in the bottom half of the top five, The Holdovers, $3.2 million. Journey to Bethlehem, $2.4 million. Tiger 3, 1.9 million. Radical with 1.7. And then Paw Patrol, still in the top 10 with 1.7 million. So there we go. The mighty movie indeed. If you're still in lines for the Paw Patrol movie, stay in line. (laughs) For uh, the upcoming weekend, November 17th to the 19th, Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. A mouthful of a title. It is coming out. <laughs> it uh, seems like it'll be around sixty million, something like that. Um, so we will see how that goes. We will be supporting that opening weekend number. We so we'll will see be how part high of we can... sixty-six million. Yeah, we'll see how Let's we can bring it, it up. Um, but yeah, let's now dive into our discussion of the Hunger Games franchise as a whole so of course adapted from a very popular series of YA novels written by Suzanne Collins they were written from 2008 to 2010 and then the actual movie adaptations were from 2012 to 2015 and the novels they kick-started a wave of uh, YA dystopian novels that followed suit um, and a lot of them were successful and then they all also wanted to have their very successful adaptations to the big screen, but I don't think any of them were nearly as successful as Hunger Games. <laughs> Many of them petered out. Uh, here's looking some at of you, Divergent. Up, yeah, I was about to say, some straight up just gave up. They did. They tried yeah. to, they, they even followed the template of like, let's split the last one into two films, uh, like Hunger Games yeah. or Harry Potter and Twilight, but they didn't yeah. even get to finish that fourth film. so yeah we have um four films in the hunger games franchise off of those three books and so i'm just curious of what your guys's relationships are to the franchise the books way back when they were getting released and when the films were coming out did you read the books were you watching the films andrea let's start with you first because i think The answer to those are yes. (laughs) Yeah, I did read the books. I only started reading the books once I had seen the first movie. Mm -hmm. So once the first movie came out, I was hooked and I read all the books. 
because at that point all the books had already come out um and then yeah I mean Catching Fire I was there premiere weekend <laughs> with my friends and I think one chaperone for a mom I don't know if it was my mom or my best friend's mom but yeah I loved them I didn't end up watching Mockingjay when it came out because I think I just, it's just because I didn't connect with the last Mockingjay book but mm. I ended up watching that for the first time uh, earlier this year, actually. I watched both of them over again because I had watched a little bit of the first one and I never got into it. So then I watched both earlier this year and then I rewatched them recently. But I am a big Hunger Games fan. And by then I had already read at the beginning of this year the newer book, which is Songbirds and Snakes, which is coming out. But gotcha. Awesome. All right. And then Seb... How about you? What is your relationship to the Hunger Games? I was there opening weekend for the Fifth Wave, um, <laughs> another <laughs> massively successful YA. No, I have never read the books. I haven't even touched them. Um, I it's not because I don't believe in Hunger Games, but I just simply didn't feel the connection to it. I watched the first Hunger Games movie. I watched was Catching Fire in like junior year of high school they were showing it in class i watched it i was enthralled i thought that it was such a fantastic movie like genuinely i thought that was i was like okay this is <laughs> this is fantastic and i just didn't feel the need to go back to the first one or the last two because it felt like like it was such a great experience and by that point the movies i think had already fully come out and uh, I just didn't have the passion or drive to continue. And then for for in preparation for Songbirds and Snakes, a very passionate person um, <laughs> decided to have me sit down and watch all of them so we can then go watch Songbirds and Snakes. And then this is the first time that I, in the span of a week, I watched the first song games, we watched Catching Fire, and eagerly sat through Mockingjay part one and two. And now I'm I'm like looking at the time. I'm like, we have to go because I'm excited for, <laughs> for more. Awesome. All right. So, yeah, you have now caught up on all the movies, but never read the books. No. Gotcha. I told I told Andrea. Because I kept thinking about mocking, uh, not mocking Jay. I kept uh, thinking about catching fire from our rewatch. That I feel like I want to go back to the book. That's like the only urge I've gotten to go back to the source material. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, for me, I did read the books back around the time when they were coming out. I don't remember exactly. When, because I remember distinctly, my brother first school was reading. My older brother was reading um, Hunger Games for one of his classes, like you know, over the summer when you have to read some stuff before mm -hmm. the next year. I think that was one of the ones he had to do. Um, and then I remember I had to go and read those books as well. But there was some issue with my schedule or something where I feel like I got misinformation about it. Because I thought I was in the um, regular class, right? The traditional class where we would have to read Hunger Games and Catching Fire. Mm -hmm. But I find out 
the day before school starts that I was in the advanced class of the the English thing. And this was in middle school. So uh, I was in that advanced English one. And so we had to read all three of the Hunger Games books. And I was like, oh, snap. I have not read <laughs> that third one. So me, Seb, as you know, being a little studious guy that I am, I'm like, I got to read this book in one day so that I can be prepared for school tomorrow. So that's what I did. I have vivid memories of me reading pretty much all throughout the living room, like me switching positions. And at one point I just ended up on the floor <laughs> instead of the couch. I was like, I should have this play out here and just continue reading it. Um, and so I read the entirety of Mockingjay in one day. Um, and so, yeah, that was, I think I said before, I was like, it was like a fever dream moment of, I was, I felt like I went through what Katniss went through by the end of that from like, Jesus, <laughs> tuckered out by the end of that. Um, but yeah, so I remember reading those books and I can't remember exactly when that was, if that was right before, cause it came out 2012, the first, uh, movie. So I can't remember if it was going into sixth grade or seventh grade that we had to read those books. Um, so I can't remember if I had read those books before seeing the first Hunger Games. I feel like I did because I think I knew the Rue thing was coming. Um, but for sure, for all those other ones, I had the knowledge of the books going into the movies. Um, but what's fascinating is the notable absent from absence from the podcast today, Dylan. He refused to come on to the podcast about Hunger Games <laughs> because he despises Mockingjay specifically so much. Like, I, th I think he was fine That's with so the other valid. books, but he hated Mockingjay and then has also refused to watch any of the movies as a result of that, except for Catching Fire, which he does agree is also really, really good. So <laughs> at least he, he's solid on that front. But for whatever reason, he just did not enjoy Mockingjay at all and refused even for the content to come on here and potentially rant. He refused to watch these films. Dylan, <laughs> Dylan we deserve to hear your opinions. We deserve to hear your <laughs> angry rants. Uh, he always escapes. He always escapes whenever he has when to you're talk here, movies with When me. you come on specifically, it's like oh, he's always dodging. The one time, yeah, the one time he was on, <laughs> I was I was sitting back. I wasn't even participating. I was simply <laughs> a judge, and I was favorable to him. Uh, it should have been a clean sweep for Ryan, and it wasn't because I advocated for Dylan, and he still runs away from me. It's unfair. Exactly. So maybe maybe he'll listen back to this and you can convince him with how you were converted to a Hunger Games fan. But even then, yeah, I was like, it's been, what, a decade almost or something since you read those books and you haven't seen those films, like give it a chance. Maybe your mind will change. And he was like, no, it's not happening. So <laughs> that's pretty funny. But I have always been a huge fan of the books like I think for sure they're like they just hit all the notes that you would want out of like that YA genre that dystopian sort of genre like it hits it all has a fantastic premise I think it's up there with uh Jurassic Park as just one of the greatest all-time premise because you can just say it to anyone and they're immediately intrigued of 
oh, a bunch of kids get rounded up and thrown into a battle royale situation to the death. And I think whatever you you want to say about the franchise or the movies or the YA movement, uh, The Hunger Games is incredibly smart. I think that thematically, uh, world building, uh, character wise. I mean, I'm coming. I'm talking about the movie specifically. I can't speak to that on the books, but the 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 foundations there are incredibly smart. Um, and that's one of the things that really surprised me the most upon watching all the movies, um, is how, just how it's so easy to discount YA in the same way we discount like Twilight for being like a stupid, like, like, uh, like fantasy type romance, heavy, like just silly romp, but here it is so there's so much meat there's so much to grasp on there's so much to reflect on the movies just leave you with with so much and and that's like the one thing that like truly surprised me yeah i mean i think that they're really smart like seb said because even reading songbirds and snakes which is is the prequel sometimes i feel like prequels tend to be cheapened because it's like, oh, this happened because of this, actually. And it's like, no, you clearly did not think that out. But even with the prequel, everything with Snow feels so well thought out. And it feels like she wrote that before she wrote any of the other uh, novels. But yeah, that YA genre wasn't taken too seriously at the time, I think. Especially the movies weren't given, I guess, the caliber of excellence that they truly were not talking about Mockingjay I have my own <laughs> problems with Mockingjay but yeah those reading that really changed me like as a person just and it got me more political I think which was I think something that we saw more in, in our generation of kids our age getting more political a lot younger than maybe our parents did or any generations before us. And I think that those books really attributed to that. Yeah, it's a, a fascinating point that you bring up because I've noticed that pattern, which honestly probably was set off by the Hunger Games, but a lot of those YA dystopian novels, they follow that trend of the first book will sort of hone in on whatever that premise is. Battle Royale of kids fighting or like with Maze Runner, they're bunch of kids trapped in this weird maze and they got to find a way to get out then as the series progresses it shifts to be more about this rebellion against an authoritarian government and this terrible dictator and i think it does really do a service to the the readers especially the younger audience for that to be the case because it draws you in with that very exciting premise and it does serve really well as a great piece of entertainment but it's also political commentary, right? It is reinforcing these values that, you know, we would want in a democracy that we would want to see get reinforced and show up and appear time and time again in our stories. And so having these rebellions against terrible governments, um, and then, you know, this restoration of equality and justice and fairness and all of those amazing things that we see come to pass, or at least that the characters fight for and at the end of the respective franchises we do get that glimmer of hope that 
they'll be able to work towards that as a society overall. I think it is a great element to a lot of these stories and that the Hunger Games probably both in its book and in the adaptations, of course, since it's one of the few that actually was able to get through its entire series. Um, it's able to nail that really well. I think another thing that truly helped that was kind of like the colliding, the colliding, um, the colliding kind of societal changes that were happening. Uh, like if you look at the timeline, like the movies ended ended in 2015, right before the 2016 elections, and like watching something so strong about feeling so strongly against um, a government where two opposing like candidates are like like the, you're choosing between the lesser of two evils, and then watching like mocking Jay and having to then watch something similar happening in real life, like radicalizes you so quickly. Um, and that that is just like very compelling to to kind of see how much of that also comes from the times that we have been brought up in and have grown up in. And I was definitely watching these movies again with that kind of mindset, but like, I guess like years later and seeing and trying to think about when these movies were released, when the books were written and have that context. Uh, so it's just very compelling. For sure. So let's start diving into each of the movies one by one. First off, The Hunger Games, directed by Gary Ross, which is the only time that Francis Lawrence did not direct it. So first one kicked off with a different person behind the wheel than who steered the rest of the franchise. It made $695 million worldwide. And then, of course, it also turned Jennifer Lawrence into a household name, a superstar. So, And then it also has a really stacked cast. That's the other thing, too, of like these YA adaptations. I mean, none of them had the cast that this one did. In addition to J-Law, we got Josh Hutcherson, Liam Hensworth, Woody Harrelson, Donald Sutherland, Amanda Stenberg, Elizabeth Banks, and then they add even more big names as we progress. So, yeah, amazing stuff there. Um, so let's just talk about the Hunger Games. Again, I sort of mentioned the premise of it is really good. Um, again, not something that we haven't seen before, of course, is that like Battle Royale movie, which is, was that Korean, I believe? Um, but that, British. you know, that, say what? No, no, I agree. I think it was Korean as well. Okay, yeah. No, I Barrel Royale was Japanese. Japanese, okay. Oh, it was? Thank you. So, yeah. like, that film came out around the turn of the century, I think, like 2000, maybe on the top or something like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so, like, that film had existed. I'm fact-checking. <laughs> Amazing live fact-checker here. So, we we have seen, like, remnants of that before, right? But just the way that they frame it, bringing it into that like YA genre specifically, um, and then all the other world building aspects that they put on top of it, you know, it being this annual event that is done to keep the districts in line, and then it being kids from like, I think 12 to 18, like once you hit 18, you age out of it. So um, it being specifically 
like, yeah, these kids, these teenagers that are thrown in there, um, just a really immediately intriguing premise, grabs you, hooks you. The stakes are so clear and obviously baked in. So I think that part is great. Um, and then the film as a whole, it has such a satisfying structure to it. Like we get that initial time in District 12, then we get the reaping, then we move into the training slash all the like showmanship of it being, you know, they turn it into a reality show basically. So you get those elements. And then midpoint, we start the games and then the rest of it is that survival story interlaced with the romance that she has with uh, PETA. So just really well thought out, well structured there. Um, and it has a nice just progression to it. So yeah, and that comes from, I mean, Suzanne Collins sort of had that laid out in the book. And I think it made it really easy to translate that to a film, cut down on what they needed to, obviously to streamline it for a two hour film rather than however many page book where they could go into more detail um, and not much, I think, got lost from it in this first book. There are some things, though, some relationships that needed a bit more development in the film. But overall, what do you guys think about this film, the highlights, the lowlights? I love this movie. I do prefer Catching Fire to it, but I think it's a great start. I like the setup for it. Like you said, it's very we get a little time in everything and we can at least see where Katniss is coming from. I do think certain things get lost in the film. For example, like Prim, for, I think gets really lost in like Katniss's like true dedication to her and how Prim, I know a lot of people right now like to say that everything was planned and like the reaping was planned and like that's the theory where like it was planned that Prim was going to get picked so Katniss would volunteer and they'd have a Mockingjay. And I don't really believe in that theory because I don't know if you ever saw this in the book, you probably remember, but there's also a deleted scene for people who like watching the movies. Uh, there's a scene where Katniss and Gail talk about how their names are in the reaping bowl multiple times because they yeah. got more rations of food. And this is Prim's first year in the reaping and her name's only in once whereas gail i think he said he had like 15 times his name was in and someone who has done everything right is just a kid is not getting those extra rations is not doing anything that will put them more likely can still get picked is just an insane concept and just like i mean the entire thing obviously when you think about it puts um a bad taste in your mouth obviously but especially that part is just ugh. but I do really really like this movie I think it sets up the characters really well for the next one as well yeah I think I think that this movie is very very unfair to me I had such a great time with like building up building up Katniss building up um her world building up what essentially was the status quo for Pan Am at that point. And God was everything so compelling before we got to the games themselves. Because watching this person get dragged from what is technically considered 
the last district, like the like the low lowest of the lows, and be brought all the way to the capital, and then she has to figure out like the politics and the dynamics, and is such a like such a 180 from what she used to know and watching her prep for the hunger games that she is being kind of like a groomed in a sort of way to, 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 to be ready for these games, but also something a little bit more. Um, Cause that relationship she has with Cinna uh, is, is very interesting. Who is also a fantastic character. Um, I, enjoyed that so much by the, the time we actually got to the games i was kind of disappointed that we weren't going to get more of that because <laughs> um, i could just watch those politics on and on and on um but yeah it's i mean it's a classic for a reason this is the first introduction we have to this world uh we get some fantastic characters i'm speaking from a movie perspective But Woody Harrelson is always fantastic and so never good. phoning it in, never phoning it in one second of his career. Um, Donner, Donald Sutherland as Snow is just perfectly evil. The main two, Jennifer Lawrence, who is possibly like one of the greatest discoveries uh, in terms of, of talent. She's, she's fantastic. And you really don't realize that until... We watched No Hard Feelings a few days ago as well. And like watching her in this is so like she she can do it all. And I wish she still was as respected as I don't know why people started hating on, on JLo, but she's fantastic. Josh Hutcherson or Sathra King coming like giving us a, a spectacle, giving us a show. Um, and the standout, the standout for me was Elizabeth Banks, who ate up every single line, the scenery, the costume. Like, she just, I never thought Elizabeth Banks had it in her, but goddamn, is Effie <laughs> such, like, a great character, and it played fantastically by Elizabeth Banks. And um it's just a fantastic cast i think story-wise it's again it, it's so small we forgot stanley tucci stanley tucci i was gonna have i had him <laughs> as a separate thing there the caesar flickerman interviews just amazing like brilliant casting choice there just what an amazing because i mean yeah in the books you have that character and it's that same sort of like ridiculous game show host interview like late night person um and just the way they bring that to life with the whole the theme song too that he has yeah. such a banger amazing but like the so white funny. as can be teeth looking like dentures the blue wig <laughs> in the back like it's just amazing he does and incredible in that just his cadence in the way he delivers everything just makes it so believable to to us as well every time he like refers to like Uh, Katniss and Peter's love and he he turns to the audience and he's like isn't that adorable and you're like you know what it is and you're absolutely <laughs> not a puppet at all uh, he's just so good in that oh no yeah. it is very compelling as well just because he is the 
the more accurate representation of the capital people. Like Snow is Snow. He's the president. He's the highest. But if you're thinking of like, okay, what represents the capital people? It's Caesar and even Effie. But the, the interesting thing about Effie is she doesn't really, from what I remember, and I could be wrong, but she doesn't have a huge part in the books. So it's really like the love that people had for her in the movies that gave her so much development, especially in Mockingjay. So that's really interesting as well. Yeah, for sure. Because it's in, it's catching fire and it does sort of come like out of nowhere a little bit with how she is in this film to that next one where she suddenly has so much care for Katniss and Peeta. But I think it was a really good yeah. decision to lean into that more and have her be like, oh, we're a team and all this and have her actually connect with, um, you know, those tributes. So, yeah, I like yeah. that they uh, took her character in that direction. Um, but yeah, I think the, I agree with Yuseb about like the whole, the political angle of it, but then also that like working the angle of the star-crossed lovers and trying to get mm -hmm. sponsors and having to play the game that the Capitol wants you to in order to turn it into such an entertainment spectacle for the Capitol. That part of it, on rewatch, I was surprised at how much that was more compelling to me than the uh, the survival aspects of the actual games later on. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that component to it. I did have, I had a little question in here of, would people watch The Hunger Games? Like if things go, you know, a little bit awry in our uh, near future, and then say it's the year 2030 or whatever and we're pumping out hunger games would people actually watch it because how exactly do they cut that up is it just a live stream and you're you can just like come in and watch and like choose which person which tribute you're following or do they make it like a highlight reel and then it just airs prime time at uh each weekday that it's going on for i never knew how it's like how is that happening where the capital is watching it? I, but now in the age of like Twitch and streaming and Love Island, which apparently goes on for like six days of the week or something for a month. That's crazy. I'm like, people would straight up, they would tune in like every day to just be watching the Hunger Games go down. And I guess we do kind of see it because when Gail is like, he's like at work or something as he's watching PETA and Katniss uh, get it on. So they kind of do allude to that, that yeah, it's just a thing that is going on in the background. But I feel like, I don't know, people definitely would, aside from the whole thing of the morality and what would need to happen to a society for people to be watching kids kill each other as entertainment. I think the, uh, the actual logistics of people watching like a live stream of 24 hours for however long it goes on, people would do that. Like we've gotten to that point. So there's one danger there. We're one step closer to Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I do think people would probably watch it. I mean, for the districts, they're forced to watch it. And that, mm. I don't, I mean, I'm talking a lot about the prequels, but the prequels explain a lot of the, oh, not the prequels, the prequel <laughs> talks <laughs> a lot about the games now because they weren't like that in the first 10, but it started as, Districts were mandatory to watch them, and so was everyone in the Capitol. But a lot of the Capitol obviously did not want to watch right after a war. 
a bunch of children get killed. Mm -hmm. So that's why they created them to be these personalities. And like you see it in the trailer for Songbirds and Snakes where uh, Heavensby, which is played by, oh my God, his I'm losing his name. Tyrion? The Sorry? Peter Dinklage? Yeah, Peter Dinklage, who's played by Peter Dinklage, says, you're not here to make them survivors, you're here to make them a spectacle. Mm. Which is like what they are. And with how we are with reality TV, and I'm guilty of it, it's like these people are spectacles and you're just watching. It's like you've detached the fact that they're actual human beings at this point. So For sure. I wanted to just highlight, I thought the most... One of the most effective parts in the film was Rue's death. I think they needed way more development for their friendship. But I thought the amount of time that they dedicated to her actual passing, like we see uh, Katniss break down over her, then we see her get angry, then we see her putting like the flowers together for when she gets picked up. And then we see the effect of that in District 11. Um, so I thought the way that they handled that, of course, like her singing the the one song uh, that she also sings to Prim earlier on. So I thought that was like really beautiful, really affecting and moving. So I was amazed at how the film can strike moments like that, which are so effective, but then also have moments that they just drop the ball on for seemingly no reason. Like they were right there like they brought it all the way to the finish line on some of them and then they just fumbled it the uh tracker jacker thing is one that stuck out to me of her having to saw away the branch to drop down like the beehive um and it was great buildup of her like getting stung and having like slap them away it's like the sound design was really good in that and everything but then the actual moment of it her cutting through and it falling down completely fell flat like it didn't have that same oomph that it was building up to it didn't have that climactic moment when it actually hits the ground like that was solid but the moments of her finally breaking through and slicing through it and bringing it down didn't pack the punch it was supposed to same thing with mm -hmm. Rue's like actual death itself like when we see the reveal of the spear whatever editing choice they did to change from that like one shot on her face you think it's just going to like tilt down to see the spear through her belly but then it cuts to a different angle which is now like a two shot and it like sort of doesn't i don't think actually breaks the 180 rule but it like sort of is disorienting with how far it goes away and mm -hmm. then we see it and then like cuts back to the angle and i'm like why did we do that like you you had it there just keep it in that one shot if we see her face and we see the spear through her so, i have a response to that Go ahead. Two words. Gary Ross. Yes. Our <laughs> I, lovely director here. He was, which is, which is one of the wildest things that, um, that coming into the first Hunger Games after having only seen Catching Fire was so like, like such a vivid night and day. Because I remember Catching Fire looking excellent. Like I remember that's a pretty like pretty shot movie. It's very Absolutely. well made. Uh and it it's just fan like genuinely fantastic filmmaking. But this was just bad. I think it 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 was like 
doing the most with what it could. And I told Andrea while we were watching it, it really feels cheap in the way a student film would try to hide flaws in in like budget or possibilities. Like like there was something about the filmmaking where they clearly were trying to do more than uh than what they could have and that shows right so yeah i agree it definitely does not uh look as good as the later ones in the franchise although there was one moment when they were up in the hotel room it was like katniss and Peta, and they were just having a quiet moment and the lighting is like wrapped around the face was top tier but that was like the one moment where i was like oh this looks good and the rest of it was like Oof. <laughs> definitely see how the uh the budgets got better later on and they got a uh, more visual minded filmmaker later on but some of the techniques that he tried to use again i think was like good in concept like the whole shaky cam stuff and having the sound fall away when the games start i like that approach but it's just a bit mm. too messy to really like pack the punch and they were also yeah. trying to hide like the violence a bit since it's pg-13 so yeah. I mean the jump the jump in budget is so significant from one to the other. One is like near eighty million and, and catching fire is like one thirty to one forty according to Wikipedia. So you can you know you can <laughs> live fact checker there, thank you. <laughs> um but yeah. All right. So for the first Hunger Games film, how many cornucopias out of five are you giving it? Seb, we'll start with you. I give it three and a half. All right. Drea, how about you? Three and a half as well. Really? From the Hunger Games super fan, a three and a half. <laughs> Crazy. I'm giving it a four. Just because I think oh. Oh, wow. yeah, it hits okay. all the beats that it's trying to go for really well. Again, that cast, you just, it, you can't beat it. It's so enjoyable to watch Actually, the thing. You can beat it. Because then that cast gets even better. That's true. They do. They stack the deck even more with Catching Fire. So that one, switching to Francis Lawrence for the director. This one made $865 million. So a nice little jump there. And then joining the cast, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jeffrey Wright, Jenna Malone, Sam Kaplan. Like amazing stuff coming in there. Um, and of course, all our returning faces from before. Um, and so with this film, I mean, it does everything Hunger Games does, but way better. Like, it's insane. They truly take it up like the Survivor and all these other reality shows that do the all-star season. And you're like, I mean, yeah, just that much better than the normal ones. This one does it. It, like, absolutely lands the plane, hits the mark. So good. So they they do a bit more of that. Um like political stuff and like having to play the angle with the victory tour and Peta and Katniss are like on the rocks. They don't really like each other at the moment since uh, <laughs> yeah, Peta thought he really believed in what was going on in the games there. And Katniss was not quite as uh, ready to admit how real it was in there. So they're on the rocks, but they have to play that they're in love. Um, so I think that's a great dynamic there. And then when we move into the whole, all-star season we get all the previous victors returning for the quarter quill we get to spend more time with the other victors so i like that dynamic as well um and it's just it's a lot of fun like having 
them have to try and make allies, make friends, and Katniss is like only able to gravitate towards the weirdos. Um, so yeah, <laughs> just fun stuff there. And then the games itself, I think it's so brilliantly constructed the way that yeah. they, there's like the obvious goal going in of survive. Only one can survive. But Katniss is trying to save PETA. She wants him to live. PETA wants Katniss to live. So you have that going on. But then, and then everyone else. Exactly. Unbeknownst to them, everyone else is trying yeah. to keep them alive. Um, so it's just amazing. The way that is like slowly rolled out over the course of the games, in addition to like trying to figure out what the games themselves are, like having that component of the 12 sections and they each have their own weird um like danger that is specific to that section them having to unravel those mysteries just so good like it adds another layer onto the whole survival element um brilliant, there is just such, stuff. there is such a sense of like wonderful discovery to this movie which i had already seen it i already knew i mean there's some details that were lost on me uh, and as the movie was progressing, I I remember like turning to Andrea and being like, "Oh, I remember this. I remember this." Or like the pieces of knowledge I I still had from like when I watched it way back then. But holy hell, are the things that I did remember and like those like little moments were so wonderful to rediscover watching the movie. Like it made it such an entertaining and a fulfilling watch. Because it really does, like you said, it really does elevate what you love from the first one to like 10 times over. The quarter quell is just fantastic. The fact that yeah. like they they're all, they have to play the game again, but this time with that knowledge of, uh, of like they, this isn't a game anymore. Like there's so much more to it, especially with that meeting that, that Katniss has with Snow in the mansion. So she is going into this game having a preconceived notion of like, this is kind of like torture for me being rebellious. And she takes it very personally and she's trying her best. And she doesn't know about like, like, oh my God, the way, the way everyone else is just like involved in this and like the way like you get to discover that along with her and like seeing, seeing, um, I forget who it was, but that when they were being chased by the, um, by the baboons, uh, and like that one, the one victor like comes out and like, and like from like hiding and Peter says, I think she was, she was trying to protect me. And it's yeah. just like, it's just like, so like, interesting it's so fascinating it's so wild and then obviously you get you get to that awesome climax of of um of bd mr jeffrey wright who is just fantastic put him in a uh, in a movie as like a good-hearted weirdo and you <laughs> will not you will not fail and obviously uh, philip seymour hoffman as the game maker who is pulling double duty as game maker, but also yeah, game maker. That is, yeah, such a great dual little uh, character moment there of, yeah, he's playing, he's the game maker, but he's also playing Snow that whole time. But 
God, he just he's so amazing in anything. I just think back to the uh when he's trying to convince Snow that oh it is okay to lean into the whole marriage thing between Katniss and Peta. And he's like, you just gotta elevate all the like horrible actions and just associate the mm -hmm. two. Like, oh, what dress is she wearing? Floggings. What's the cake gonna look like? Execution. <laughs> like just the way he delivers all of that is just so amazing. What yeah. an actor. I mean, that movie is just like reading not reading, seeing that and knowing that while they're at the games, there's an insane rebellion starting where Katniss is the face of it and she has no clue what's going on because of how much isolation she has from the districts. And the fact that I just love the duality of it, of her in the first games being a puppet for the Capitol and basically serving Snow as like killing other kids, doing what she needs to do to survive in the games. And then in this one, becoming a puppet for the rebels and having no idea that she's the puppet for the rebels. And like, obviously they couldn't have told her because knowing Katniss, she wouldn't have just sat there and done nothing. Mm -hmm. But it's just so, so crazy to even see the capital like loyalists, which are the uh, the career victors and like District 1 also be fighting for the games to be stopped. And I forgot what her name is, but the blonde girl from <laughs> District 1 crying and saying, trying to appeal to the capital and saying, oh, like, I just feel so bad for the capital citizens and how much they're going to miss us. And it's like everyone's playing their own game and some people are playing the same game and some people aren't. And Katniss has no idea that anyone's even playing a game. Like she just and wants then, Peter to survive and that's it. But you still have that wonderful moment where in that broadcast, you see all of them trying to play that game. And then they hold hands as like a show and see Sir Flickerman back to try to wrangle all these, all these uh, talents. Um, it's just so like thrilling because you do get a sense of like they are still all in this together and going back to what is like probably one of the most traumatic and horrific things after you have thought like after you thought that you did it once you survived you paid the ultimate price you did so much killing you did some like whatever you did whatever you had horrible thing you had to do to survive to make it to the end and then to be put right back and for Katniss and Peter, that's like back to back. And it's so like beyond just like what the movie is. It's such a horrific thing to kind of think about being put through like a traumatic, tra traumatic thing, like back to back and still ha having to have that courage to do it and to survive for love, for a greater mission, for whatever it is. Because all like most of these people that were put in here that were part of the rebellion that were like were actively in the know of that were still going into this game knowing that they had no control over what was gonna happen in this arena anyway. It was just hoping for the best. So it was it's just like so compelling to start to unpeel all those layers of the story that that are here and present and to think about all these individual characters and those perspectives and that game they're playing, but also the game that's being played on them. It's so, it's so incredibly tight. It's so incredible, incredibly smart. And it's just, 
such a fantastic movie. I don't think this one doesn't meet, miss a single beat. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is fantastic. Um, and the new characters that we get to Finnick, BD, Virus, Joanna, some great entrances, especially out of Finnick and Joanna there. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I really love that. Finnick was one of my favorite characters from the book um from that like catching fire thing and i think this entrance was because i i have weirdly enough i don't know why but i have two copies of catching fire and so i cracked open one just to look at um the conversation between katniss and snow he had said something and i was like that phrasing is like so specific and i feel like i recall that like reading that specific thing and i went to go check and sure enough like that whole dialogue scene was word for word and then I didn't do it, but I suspect Finnick and Katniss's whole exchange there was also lifted straight from the book. Um, oh, there's, it works. It's Go ahead. So well, the 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 line of like uh, when she says, uh, "I think everyone knows my secrets before I do," and he like says something cheeky in response, and you're mm -hmm. like, "Oh, maybe he's just he's just like an arrogant guy," and like he was like playing up to that, but like knowing. I had a funny thing happened where I confused Finnick for uh, <laughs> for Kato at the end of oh, game four because like, like how do you come during, back? Yeah, I, I during the first movie I'm like that's the guy that's a blonde guy from the second one. Like how are they? How are three people gonna make it out of the Hongi games? <laughs> and then obviously that wasn't true. But uh, yeah, that 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 those exchanges are so. It's just so well like layered it's well written it's it's uh it, it's you can go back and back and like find those little bits and pieces of performances that are just great and the same way like you see like bd bd like um like train canis in a way like when when or like with a fire thing it's just it's just like I don't know, man. The characters here are fantastic. Like, this is a, such a good ensemble of actors playing such well-written characters. I have, yeah. I can sit here and talk about Catching Fire for the rest of the time, and it wouldn't be enough. Absolutely. Hey, yeah. Any other final thoughts on Catching Fire? I did want to say one thing, which I realized more watching it this time through and seeing Catching Fire, um, after Katniss goes to the practice where she presents whatever talent she has to the council, where obviously she does the thing where she hangs a dummy that looks like Crane, but it shows and confirms that Rue was the one that started the rebellion, because a lot of people give it to Katniss, and obviously she's a big proponent, proponent in the rebellion, but what truly like riled up the districts was seeing Rue die and having that painting of Rue and with that painting wasn't there, Katniss probably wouldn't have done the statement that she did. So it really just shows how like Rue has truly like motivated the movement the entire time, whether it be as a symbol or as a martyr, it is so interesting to like go back and see how that's acknowledged. But that that also speaks to like like a greater thing about the games and like what could spark a rebellion, what could spark change, what could spark to move people, and this is probably the first time that you that the 
districts I've been able to see compassion, like real compassion in the games. Cause it's, it's that friendship between Katniss and like that, like protection of Rue, right? Like this, like somebody that obviously reminds Katniss of, of, of Prim, like a little sister type. And just like seeing that genuine um, kindness and then having that uh, be ripped that kind of that kind of like be be ripped from from everyone uh in the most horrific way um the like it it just combined with the with the love story it's just like the first time that these districts have been able to uh like truly see so much humanity in something that was previously so inhumane and that speaks to why I think this one also works so well because all these victors go in again and obviously you have the careers and you have everything, but there's so much like humanity in this games going around. And, and I think that's uh, uh, like, I ran out of words, so I'm going to leave it there. No, I think it was well said. And also, this is why I wish at times this is a video podcast rather than just the audio podcast, because what just <laughs> happened here, as you're in the middle of your spiel, we just see fireworks go up behind you, like the background I, I changes, got, it's just a firework. At first, it was like the thumbs up bubble, mm-hmm. and then it became like the, because I think you do the two things, and then like the camera does it, and it distracted me, and then it made me... I. I thought I was going on such a great tangent. I'm like, this is beautiful. I I don't have to speak for the rest <laughs> of the podcast after that. And then I I stumbled. It distracted. I was me. trying so hard not to laugh at you. I know. I was amazed I that you kept going. I was like, he's gonna break here. Like, there's no way. But you kept it going. No, I, so I am a strong soldier, and I will make it. I was gonna <laughs> make it through my my thoughts if if it killed me. Props to you for that. See, y'all are already turned into uh, podcasting experts. So, yeah. <laughs> How many flaming dresses out of five for this one? Andrea, we'll start with you. Solid five. A full five. Oh, there we go. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Seb, what about you? <laughs> this is 4.5 flaming dresses. I think it's the best of the franchise. And For just sure. a genuinely good film. Yeah, I think it's pretty much unanimous on that front. Best of the uh, the bunch. I'm also giving it 4.5 Flaming Dresses out of 5. It's just such a smart, intelligent, well-done, entertaining, thoughtful blockbuster. Like, this is what we need more of. Like, this was <laughs> hitting all the right marks. So, yeah, great stuff. Moving on to Mockingjay Part 1. A bit of a uh, a shift there from the peak of Catching Fire. They made $755 million, again, with some cast members getting brought on. Again, crazy stuff. Julianne Moore, Marshall Ali, <laughs> and Natalie Dormer, is I believe her name. Can you fact check that one? I've been known to uh, rely on my memory too much with actors' names, and it uh, usually gets messed up. But that would be that would be correct. Yeah, Marjorie from uh, Game of Thrones. So, in this one, Andrea, 
what about Mockingjay? And we can sort of blend together part one and part two if you want here, but what about these films did not work for you as much as the other ones? I think, well, first of all, I think, and even uh, the director, Francis Lawrence is his name, right? Mm -hmm. He even admitted like it should not have been two parts. I think there's a lot of filler in between these movies, especially coming off two very action-packed movies and then just not being up to par, I guess, with like action and like what's going on is kind of where it loses me. It's a lot of filler, a lot of talking back and forth and... I feel like li leaving a lot of gray areas for our two main characters, like Peta and Katniss. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, just there's something about it that isn't, that doesn't hit the mark with me. There are a lot of parts of it, like the the speech that Katniss does, the, the fire is catching, and if we burn, you burn with us. Like, obviously those scenes are so remarkable, but when you put it all together as one, I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot that's not hitting for me. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it's a a good point of not enough going on there and specifically not enough action being taken by our like main characters. There's a lot of Katniss watching screens of other people talking or doing things. And then of course, she's not even really on the main mission. There's not really like a big climax to this film, um, which is in stark contrast yeah, to the other ones which have the games themselves so this one was definitely lacking that oomph that the other ones just had baked into their their premise and i do really like the political aspects of it like them leaning into creating the propaganda like her having to step into her role as the spearhead uh the figurehead of the rebellion um and then you know, her being her, she's not able to like read off of a script to do it. She has to genuinely feel it. She has to be on the front lines. Like I think that stuff was really well done, particularly how they had Haymitch coming in, who of course they had a rift in their relationship since he went back on his promise of trying to save PETA first and foremost, rather than her. Um, but then he's the one that come, comes in is like, she is not well suited to like this soundstage read from the teleprompter do it over and over again we have five takes to get it done or however many time however much time we need um she he was able to pinpoint she works best when it's coming from a genuine place so we need to get her into the war zone basically where that will be more authentic um and again yeah that speech you mentioned was fantastic jennifer lawrence so incredible like enough can't be said about Phenomenal. her acting um because it is it's the bed you know the foundation of all these films is her her character um and there's never a false note it's always bringing you in having you connect to her and she has to go through she goes through so much and she very often is having to like break down and cry and all of this but then simultaneously has to be putting on a front and coming off as strong and having that more stubborn side of herself, that fighter side of herself. So she does an amazing job with all that she's asked to do because it is a lot. Like the emotional 
like how drained she must be after all these films is crazy because yeah it's not a rollicking fun that they put Katniss <laughs> through so yeah I think some of those elements really do work but a lot of it is just not there's not enough going on enough for her to uh, wrestle with and actually have actions for like decisions that are presented to her that she can make decisions about and take action um and then they build up to that whole PETA revelation which I do think is good like her coming in there and then him lunging at her and choking her like it is a, a great surprise they do that really well but then they sort of ended off with coin giving a speech that I don't think was honestly that like rousing um and so they sort of have that as the big finale of like oh yes like the rebellion is hitting full swing but it it didn't carry the weight to it that I feel like it should have if this is like the thing we're leaving the film off of and then that's uh put over Katniss like wandering through the halls trying to find Peter's cell and we see him like freaking out um which also I felt we just needed a bit more time on that um mm-hmm. of like seeing that scene play out a little bit more since I was like built up to and I don't know I think they cut away too quickly to end the film from it so it was just a uh, like that being the end point which it didn't really present new information like her getting choked out we already knew Peta's like gone we get the exposition of the tracker jacker venom or whatever changing him so it's like that final shot that final speech they don't really give us a solid enough cliffhanger and it it just showcases how needless the splitting it into two parts really was um especially since a lot of what happens in the in that first movie could be condensed so much and the halfway and the halfway point of the movie could have should have been that Peter being rescued and Here's in the same kind of vein and structure of the other movies. The first half is build up to what is eventually the games. And I guess that's where we'll bleed into Mockingjay part two a little bit, or I'll bleed into it. I'll be a little rebellious. Because <laughs> um, there's something so compelling about going into Mockingjay part two. And then like the big review is that Snow, Snow, the best way that Snow can think of uh, dealing with that incoming uh, rebellion, you know, he, he's going to be the end, or he thinks that he can control it, and the best way he can think of um, defending the capital is by turning the capital into an arena, which is so such a brilliant, brilliant, like, just continuation of the way snow and everyone um sees the um, sees like this this twisted game back and forth because it truly is for snow it's a game and he thinks he's playing chess and he's brilliant and he has all these uh resources available to him and that he's impenetrable and just it's so so good so yeah that structure was so inherently there obviously from the books I imagine and they just made that two movies and then lost me it lost me but Mockingjay part one still contains so many like good moments I think 
coin is unfortunately one of the most like lackluster character entries in my opinion in in the franchise uh Boggs Boggs is just <laughs> fantastic um but but seeing that seeing that whole side of Katniss now having to be like actually be the Mockingjay but she's only shooting promos and she has like two camera squad on her all the time it's it's so compelling um I don't know if I can curse, but fuck Gail. Um, <laughs> I I don't know. It's just it just leaves so much to be desired, but you still get so much of that compelling politics that we love. I also my problem with and this is the last thing I'll say about Mockingjay Part One, <laughs> which as a movie, like really grinded my gears, which was the Avengersification of Hunger Games. <laughs> It felt like I, I, I told Andrea, like, they straight up turned her into a, a superhero, like X-Men style. And, like, the movies went so... There was something nice about the first two movies where it was sci-fi, but it felt, like, grounded in a way, in whatever Panem's version of grounded is. And here, it everything just felt so, like, elevated sci-fi. Not elevated sci-fi. It just felt like the sci-fi elements got elevated to a degree that I wasn't really comfortable with, and it just felt like franchise, like I know any other franchise that was coming out at that point, and that truly really, like deterred me a little bit from from these two. Yeah, gotcha. I mean that makes sense too. Like the. I kind of attribute the two parts, obviously, like what we talked in the beginning of those YA novels getting two parts, but also Lionsgate being the 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 company that had Twilight and did those two parts and saw how well it went for Breaking Dawn Part 1 and 2. But I feel like, obviously, we're not talking about Twilight, but Twilight had a much better reason to do so. Than this, it just felt like you're elongating these movies for there not to be development. I didn't, I would have loved to see PETA, not PETA, um, Katniss and Phoenix relationship that got really close on their both shared experiences of both of their lovers being kidnapped by the Capitol. And that's something that develops really, really beautifully in the books that doesn't develop in the movies. And I also think it's the same gripes I have with the books where there's too much filler and it's just not as well described as it should be and as much as I would like to have the characters we don't have Joanna's anger like we're not seeing that as much and she's a huge part of it as well so I guess we're just losing a lot of character development but I do agree with Seb where when we get to the part where they're in the capital and it's Katniss and Boggs and you see that relationship developing and Katniss lying to everyone to make sure she's the one that gets to kill Snow. Now that's wonderful because even seeing and taking who Snow is in the prequels and how his brain has developed and how his tyranny has developed, it is so interesting to see till his last dying breath, he wanted the games, he wanted to prove something and he died thinking he was right and that him and Katniss are much more similar than she would like to admit 
So that that whole part and that whole concept of Mockingjay is wonderful. But I think we could have done without part one being so long. Yeah. Agreed. I do think, yeah, when they actually, in part two, when they get to the capital, and we get particularly when Boggs is sort of explaining why PETA may have been sent there and how Coin is already playing mm -hmm. the political game this far in advance of she sees that the capital is pretty much toast, like Snow's going to get taken down, um, but she wants to secure her own power. And so one way to do that would be getting rid of the Mockingjay, making her be a martyr and not be a problem that she is unable to control when she's trying to build up a new nation. So I thought that was really compelling. Absolutely mm -hmm. rip Boggs. My man, <laughs> he didn't deserve to go, okay. but it's definitely it was inevitable. <laughs> Once he gave that like spiel to her, it's like, okay, he uh he's the one like ally that knows what is going on here and is able to help her out with it. He's toast. Um so yeah. He gets there's also one fantastic moment in Mockingjay Part Two, right after uh Box dies and um she gets handed the hollow, the, the he transfer the transfers the hollow to her. And then she's in that they're in that room uh, uh hiding from the hot tar that just got dumped on them. And she is lying and everyone else like lies for her as well in that sort of like quiet understanding that like Katniss is the most important thing here, which it's just like a theme that is repeated, like how she underestimates her value in all of this and how everyone else like fully understands how important Katniss is over everything. And that moment where she's like lying about, about the hollow and like the mission from coin and everything else to like the second in command to the site, like the, the Lieutenant and everyone else just like comes in and lies for her. And it's so fantastic. I think it's a good character moment for, for like everyone. And to see that that kind of like rally behind Katniss as they're like obviously starting to lose hope. They're seeing so many of their of their people die. Uh they're having to live through this horrific capital game. Um and and it's just fantastic. I like that this one as well was bringing up more of the the issues of war. We see that particularly with Gale and Katniss, how Gale, which, Andrea, can you like figure this out for me? Did Gale come up with the idea for that bomb, that like delayed reaction bomb? Yeah, so he, there's a part in the, the second movie, in the, right in the beginning, he's talking to Beatty. And they have this like plan down and he's talking about the delayed bombs and like the fake outs to kill more people. And Katniss talks to him about it and says like, I don't remember exactly what the line is, but she corrects him and she's like, so you just want to kill people. Like that's what you're going for. And so the second that Snow and her have that conversation, she knows it's Gale. And he's the one that came up with the plans. He didn't directly send them, obviously, because he was on the ground. He couldn't have been like, okay, send in the delayed bombs. Right. But it was his idea. And it was. I thought that that was, like, it's funny that you bring that up because I thought it was so well done where if Prim wasn't in that and that didn't take Prim's life, 
it would have been like, okay, well, it was a sacrifice. But the only way he could have really cared about what he was doing and the the human shields he was basically using as children was when he had the face of Primrose, who is basically like another little sister to him since Katniss and him grew up after both their dads died in the mines. So the same thing of like, I was supposed to protect her. And yet who's protecting the kids that are a casualty to this that have nothing to do with snow and the hunger games and like, like conception. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting, especially then you get that whole coin wants to put in capital children in the hunger games as if they haven't already suffered so much with the war again not being their fault and you get another in that in that like delayed reaction bomb sequence you get i think what is jennifer lawrence crowning achievement performance in the four movies (laughs) i keep saying three movies but in the four movies when he when she gets up um, back from like the first, uh, that first uh, bombing, or she assumes that they're done, and then the thir- District Thirteen Mets are going, are are like pushing in, and she sees Primrose, and she says, and she like confused. Obviously, this is like it's. Uh, she says like Prim, and then when she realizes, she says Primrose, but in 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 such a reprimanding way, like what are you doing here? And just like that shift between the prim and the primrose and then the bomb going off. Jennifer Lawrence looks so distraught that it's just like marvelous. And then that just sets you off, uh, sets you up for like what comes after that. And like that reveal of Coin wanting to do another Hunger Games just ties the theme of Katniss being a puppet on two fronts. And like how how like she's always just continually continue has continually been played from one side or the other, and never being able to have her own autonomy in all of this, and then for her to then go around both Snow and Coin and play both of them in a way that Snow obviously likes because of his laughter as he's getting like mauled by the mob. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just fantastic. I think, like whatever, whatever, like whatever mistake Mocking Jay Part One was, is completely made up by Mocking Jay Part Two, and like very clever, clever kind of like allegory that extremes are bad, war is bad. I mean, they're not allegories; they're pretty obvious and on the nose. But <laughs> you're being you're being told this story so, so, like, neatly that it wraps it up nice. I agree. I think the the way they wrap everything up, the ending that they give to it is extremely effective. That whole setup of the delayed reaction bomb was very well done. It also goes hand in hand. I mean, we've seen her, I think, catching fire after Gail gets whipped. We see it's Prim that's helping to treat him. So we see that we see earlier in this film or in part one, I think that she's like training as part of the medic corps. Um, so like, I think that did a great job of these very early setups early on in the film that pay off. Like it all makes sense. You're able to reconnect um, at the end. Oh, snap. Like we did see this before. We did see that they were preparing to use delayed reaction bombs 
but I thought Gail was just like explaining what they had in their arsenal. I didn't know that man came up with that idea. That's wild. Um, and yeah, then he created it, which is why it was that whole like goodbye. Yeah, that's why she rebutted I never want to see end. you again. Yeah. Um, and I think just having Prim, the person that she volunteered for initially to save her life, and then at the end of this, at the end of the war, literally the final act of that war, pretty much. And it's Prim who's out there trying to help people and she gets killed in an explosion sent by the people that Katniss is supposed to be working alongside of. Like that is just so brutal, so heart-wrenching, like the amount of suffering that Katniss went through in order to try and save Prim. And it's all for naught at the end of it. Ah, so tragic. And then I think the crowning achievement of her acting in the four films was when she's visiting her house back in District 12 and she sees the cat that Prim had and then she starts breaking down, crying, she's angry, she's like throwing things at it and then she like fully breaks down and is able to release all that emotion and then grabs the cat and hugs the cat. So, so amazing acting and there's an absolutely brutal thing to watch. Like, ugh, so tragic. I love that we... We haven't even talked about uh, PETA in so long. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, at all, I don't think. Um, but I was going to bring up that I think this movie, like, the one of the last notes that this um, movie leaves us on is that beautiful scene with with them now, I like, resting in, in District 12, and they're sleeping in separate rooms. And I think... Um, I think it's Katniss that goes to check up on Peta, or the other way around, whichever way it is. Katniss goes and to they, him, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then they, how they used to before the games, they like they like stay with each other through the night, and then which is he, beautiful, I think, because she doesn't even wake up from a nightmare. In the earlier movies, it's like oh, she has a nightmare, she screams, and she's like, "Oh, can you stay with me?" I think she just yeah. wakes up. She didn't like jolt awake. But she still was like, mm -hmm. oh, I just want to be with PETA in this moment. Like, not yeah. necessarily like, oh, I need to be sued or comfort. But it's like, oh, that's like my happy place. Let me go over there. So I thought that was a great way to communicate that. I also think, and the yeah, through the, the film, just wanted to think of like the PETA element of the real or not real, which comes back in this scene of him trying that, to... That's what I was going to say. Oh, you're just on that... there, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say that like just that line delivery of like if you love me, real or not real, is just devastatingly beautiful. It's he, like a man still trying to like wrangle with like the tracker jacker venom um uh torture, but also like the drama of all of it. It's obviously so much of it was a lie to both of them. Like this entire thing was like a game of lies constantly and and each of them didn't know what was real at any point and but all they had was each other and to like wrap it all up in like those that those years of trauma those years of of going through the worst things anybody can go through and just summarizing it in like love was that real or not real and obviously her response is real, was just like <laughs> perfect. It's a perfect beat. 
and I, or I cried. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't cry at the rest of the movies. That that beat was just delivered so beautifully, and mm. it it really um, it's it 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 really like wraps it all around neatly. For sure. Yeah, I mean, like even the. Um... It's just, I can't even handle the fact that there was a quote-unquote love triangle. Like, there was not. Like, it was not even a competition. It was always PETA. Like, it was a comfort of, like... I mean, they also played it up in the movies, obviously. They had Katniss kiss... If I'm... I think this is true. Where they had Katniss kiss Gail a lot more than she did in the books. And have, like, a more, quote-unquote, like, romantic will-they-won't-they type of relationship with Gail... But in the books, she she fell in love with Peta in the cave in the first one in the Hunger Games when he was injured and she helped him in the cave. She fell in love with him there. She just didn't want to admit it to herself. And it's just this like, oh, this such tragic, like the second she's admitting like, oh, I'm in love with you. He's he doesn't even remember who they were before that. And like and he never will like he'll never get back exactly to where he was before but in a way that's even more beautiful because he's falling in love with her all over again but ugh, so tragic <laughs> yeah just to shift over to Katniss and Snow and how their whole thing gets wrapped up I thought that that conversation between them when he's pointing out that it was Coin that did it and not him um, just a great way that whole scene wraps up of him saying, oh, I thought we promised never to lie to each other. Calling back to Catching Fire in the beginning, which he says after, she says, I don't believe you. And so what a perfect line because it works in both ways of he's saying, I'm not lying to you, but also I know that you have those doubts. Like you fully, you may not 100% believe it yet, but you do feel like it's a possibility. Suspect. So saying, oh, I don't believe you isn't entirely true. Like you you have your suspicions and then of course it gets confirmed when coin makes the uh proposal to have the hunger games continue and that's when she decides pretty much that she'll take out coin rather than snow to stop the cycle so i thought that was a, a great way to cap them off and again the casting in saint donald sutherland just amazing villain like so sinister and vile um but he's never like over the top with it we never really get him like in a screaming screaming match with someone that like makes him even more terrifying um but yeah any other final thoughts on any of these films all right then how many propos out of five for mockingjay part one i think two and a half propos for mockingjay part one gotcha Andrea. i'd give it two too oof yeah <laughs> did not like that filler stuff i'll give it a three although again because i watched them in quick succession of each other thinking back it was hard like you know i have the like outline the talking points here it was hard to come up with things to talk about for part one because so much of it already like, I... left my brain i'm like oh no that was part two no that was part two <laughs> it's like what really happened in part one like nothing so that uh i, don't know, I just do love the cast in general um and the sort of world building that we have there so it gets a bit of a curve i think to bring me to a three for that one and then how many white roses out of five for part two 
three white roses out of five for me. I think it's still a good movie, but it doesn't hit the highs that uh that um that Catching Fire do, and it's not as solid or consistent as the first Hunger Games. So it's slightly under the first one. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say three point five. I, I I just love seeing snow more and trying to figure out where his head's at and his motivations and I guess that's more I do want to say I'm a little biased because I already read Songbirds and Snakes and I think Mm -hmm. out of all the movies Songbirds and Snakes really hits Mockingjay Part 2 the best but yeah I just really like it all right I am right there with you. I'm giving it a 3.5 white roses out of five. Nice. Yeah. All right. So I think our ranking, we probably all have the same of Catching Fire, Hunger Games, part two, part one. I think so. Sounds about about right. There you go. Unanimous. That is the end all be all Hunger Games ranking right there. And it's no official. one else is allowed to have any other opinions. Exactly. It's <laughs> and a nice Johnson, the wall. <laughs> Dylan Johnson watched them in that order. <laughs> but, all right. That's all the time we have. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at the box office show pod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you like the show, give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to. And I'd like to thank andrea and sebastian our two guests for this episode thank you both for coming on and sharing your thoughts about the hunger games it was great thank you for having us on yeah anytime very fun and be sure to tune in next week have a great rest of your day bye-bye bye